People knew about that 32C EQ. They wanted that to be a mixed bus. And we held off. We wanted to bring the whole platform up to a level where we felt like, okay, this is really something that we can mix a killer record on and say, this is the Harrison. We have now launched Mixbus 32C, and it has a modeled software emulation of that original Harrison EQ. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to meet with recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experience so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Ben Loftus, the product manager for the Harrison's Workstation products. He is also an all-around developer and partner in the company. From its Nashville, Tennessee facilities, Harrison designs, manufactures, and markets large-format professional audio mixing consoles for international film and television production, post-production, broadcasting, sound reinforcement, and music recording markets. Harrison also makes a unique digital audio workstation called the Mixbus 32C, following an analog paradigm that embodies form, function, and sound. Where other DAWs might use a computer paradigm, Mixbus grows from Harrison's distinguished 40-year heritage of platinum records, such as Michael Jackson's Thriller, Paul Simon's Graceland, and the blockbuster film Spider-Man, to name a few. Mixbus is the first full-featured DAW with true analog-style mixing. Ben has been at Harrison for over 15 years, which puts him right in the middle of the Harrison family, with some of the employees here having been with the company since the very beginning in 1975. During that time, he's been part of many product launches, both large and small. And before Harrison, Ben worked at a commercial audio company called IED, where he developed custom audio software for clients as varied as NASA, Fort Knox, and Caesars Palace. I'm super excited to be joining you from right here at the Harrison Console Factory in Nashville, Tennessee. Actually, we're down just, just south of Nashville in Smyrna, Tennessee. And I can't wait to learn more about Mixbus and how it can help you make your best record ever. You can learn more about Ben and Harrison at harrisonconsoles.com. Please welcome Ben Loftus to Recording Studio Rockstars. Ben, my friend, are you ready to rock? Absolutely, Lich. Let's do it. Dude, it's so great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you joining us and, and inviting us to the console factory here. You gave me a brief tour when I got here. It's super cool. I mean, the history, just the depth of design that has gone into these consoles and Harrison as a, as a company for years and years and years um, is really inspiring. So I'm excited to be here. Great to meet you. Rockstars, I just sort of in a moment of inspiration one day, uh, not too long ago, I had been hearing about the Mixbus 32 and I thought to myself, I was like, man, these guys are right in Nashville. I'm just going to reach out to them, learn more, and invite them onto the show. So thanks for having us here. Tell us more about who you are in your own words and how you got to want to work in music and audio. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you started there. I went to school to be a mechanical engineer, actually. And during that time, I worked at a hi-fi shop. I, I kept checking this place out because they had a bunch of high-end speakers, you know, 
And I would walk by because it was in, I was, I came from a small town and it was in a little strip mall that we were frequenting to get haircuts or whatever. And they always had cool stuff out in the window. And I would always walk in and wander around and they would kind of ignore me. But when I got to be a teenager, I went in there and this guy sat me down. He pulled out, I think it was a, a Pink Floyd record first, you know, and he put it on these killer speakers and it just blew my mind. And then you did know, you I mean, guys? That's when I became an audiophile. Then did know? he put on uh, the Wizard of Oz on the TV screen, and you guys started <laughs> yeah, the watched, record at the third line the roar, at the same right? Time. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. And then he he pulled out. Oh, what was that guy's name? It was like a jazz guitarist. I wish I could remember all these details, but he like played Joe all this. Just completely like blew my mind. I mean, the imaging and it, all the things, all the hi-fi things that you never, maybe most people don't pay attention to, suddenly jumped out at me. So I became a complete audiophile nut, and I went on to work there. I worked there all through college for four years. I worked there, and I we actually aligned. The, it was a real tweaky hi-fi shop, so we aligned the cassette tape machines. You know, we would actually check the alignment and the bias on the cassette machine, old Nakamichi cassette machines. We would do simple repairs, you know, replacing diaphragms and replacing tubes and not heavy duty electronics, but it was certainly an introduction. And I read every one of those manuals and cut sheets for every single product we had or ever had carried. The store carried clip speakers back then. And that was we were right at the tail end of when that was really a good thing to do, a real cool right, thing, right. you know. But I had all their old documentation from the from the 50s and 60s. Uh, Paul Klipsch had these little these little papers that he was sending out. It was called The Dope from Hope because he was in <laughs> Hope, Arkansas. Nice. And it was little technical papers about efficiency <laughs> and why, you know, a more efficient speaker was important and what distortion was and why low distortion was important. Blah, blah, blah. Man, I read all that stuff. Just couldn't get enough of it. And the uh, the guy that owned the store, uh, Dr. Steve Shepard, was a professor at the university and he was uh, a research-based professor there. He would kind of take me under his wing sometime and, and teach me some of these technical things. And he, he taught a class in loudspeaker design, which I was never able to take. It just wasn't taught in any of the semesters that I was, I had a slot that I could take it. But of course I was around him, you know, for quite a lot of the time anyway. So I picked up a lot of things from him. Yeah. And that was the, uh, that was the beginning of my audiophile life. So then I really wanted to get into the electronics, manufacturing, audio industry from Starkville, Mississippi. I didn't know how to go about that. I applied over it at PV, that was the closest place. Eventually, I had to get a job, man. I got married around that time and didn't look like there were going to be any opportunities for me in that realm. So I started as a mechanical engineer at a factory making electric motors that roll your windows up and down. And <laughs> nice. uh, then I... Did I you put any to, of those in the recording studio eventually? <laughs> I probably should have. All that stuff I learned about windings would have been great for man, transformers. Can you imagine if you press a button and the control room window to the would tracking room just rolls down? You'd be like, hey, man, come on. Come on in, guys. Roll it back You up. could pretend that you had really great studio monitors and it sounded exactly like it was coming straight off the tracking floor. Exactly. You know? Uh, we had a lot of fun. My wife and I got married, and we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. I started working as an engineer at a shipyard there, so building boats. But in, in Louisville, in Louisville, yeah. What's what? Oh, because the river goes through Louisville. The right? river, yeah. yeah. There's a river yeah. right through there, and so you know the boats they used in World War II. They had the landing craft that would the front door would flop open. All the guys oh, would yeah, you know, right, storm right. the beach. Well, anyway, this was one of the places where they manufactured those, and it got converted into a, a shipyard where they made these uh, towboats and barges that go up down the river. So anyway, I was working there, and I was doing a lot of AutoCAD stuff. I was doing a lot of programming on the side, kind of learning that side of the thing. And a company that I was not familiar with, it was a commercial audio company called IED, published that they had a, 
programming opportunity. I went to the interview. They asked what my programming experience was. And I said, well, I went to school to be a mechanical engineer and I kind of learned it on the side. I don't know that much. But during the conversation, the guy, somehow it came up that he had some Altec voice of the theater loudspeakers. Well, like the clips horns, which I had, and the voice of the theater were sort of the two big competing, you know, yeah. those were the two coolest things you could have in 1965 or whatever. You know, yeah, whatever, I remember whatever. really coveting the Klipsch Heresy 2s. Yeah. I don't know if that's that same era. I had them era. all, man, because I worked at that shop. We, we I, I lived with all those things. But I ended up taking some of the, the biggest ones, the corner horns, home. Man, I bet your house was a cool house to hang out in, dude. Everybody, yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> we had all the loud parties, and I was always trading stuff out. Nobody knew what all that junk was. It had tubes poking out everywhere and, you know, big knobs on the front and all kinds of silly hi-fi things. Well, one of the cool things about, you know, that that, that hi-fi environment, and I was going to point out there are a couple of other people. I actually, when I moved to Nashville, one of the first jobs I got was in a hi-fi store, just like you described, you know, they had high, real high-end stuff. But this is a little later. This is like 90, 91, I think it was. I actually got the job because I was like, yeah, I'm going to recording school, you know? And he was like, oh, cool. You know, here's some kid who's going to be real knowledgeable. I got fired within a week <laughs> and he let me go and I asked him why. He said, man, I just I just really thought you knew more than you did. Because you know? <laughs> I was asking him how to do things like, well, how do you turn on the stereo here? But then the other person I was going to uh, reference is um, G. Parned from MCI. Absolutely. You know, he yeah. had a hi-fi shop down in Florida as he, as he you know, founded and started MCI. And Hi-Fi was really a DIY thing when it first began. You know, it was like the idea of speaker design, build your own speakers, amplifiers, you know, receivers like the Scott tube amps, and, and for example, and that sort of thing. These were projects that you would get and you would assemble it and build it yourself. So it's cool to hear you talking about, you know, collecting all this stuff and learning how it works. Yeah, that was, I think a lot of people get introduced to it because they like, they get introduced to this industry because they like the sound of things. Sometimes you like the music, and then music obviously is important, but there are people like us that get into the sound of that music, which is a completely different thing. I mean, anybody can appreciate music, but it does take a little bit of education to appreciate you know, what good sound is. And or just I think, an opportunity to hear it. Or just an opportunity to hear it. Maybe they suck you right in. Yeah. yeah, get in front of a pair of speakers that really sound incredible like that. Yeah, that's certainly what happened to me, and I think certainly a lot of people have had that opportunity and had that happen to them. Then there are a lot of people that just aren't, they don't really get the bug like we do, you know, like really where you're willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice <laughs> you know, your living room to stereo Yeah, components. exactly, to speakers and, uh, you know, having your wife help you carry stuff from house to house, you know, <laughs> as you move. <laughs> well, so, Ben, tell us a little bit about the history of Harrison Consoles, too, because this is a pretty amazing company. And um, just tell us what you know about it and what we don't know yet. Yeah, I'll, I'll share what I know. Of course, I came in relatively late in the Harrison Company. I've been here about 15, 16 years, which uh, is a long time to work somewhere, but fairly short in the scheme of things. But Dave Harrison was collaborating with Jeep Harned, as you mentioned, and they were building MCI consoles. Actually, I didn't know that they were working together. Yeah, Dave, Dave Harrison was the designer for some of those early, or some of the later model MCI consoles. And Dave also had a, a company called Studio Supply, and he would go build studios and install these MCI consoles and MCI tape machines. He also had a manufacturing company. He made a really early digital delay box. I think it was called the Pandora, or the, the company was called Pandora Systems, and they had a delay box with a funny name, which I forget. But he was just starting to get into this manufacturing thing, and he had a really cool idea 
for mixing consoles that were really going to make things go faster and smoother in the studio. And it was intended to mate up with uh, the new syncable machines that you would have not just 16, but, you know, 24 or 32 tracks recording at a time. And so he developed the Harrison 32 series console. He actually took that idea to Jeep Harned. Jeep decided not to manufacture that. And that irritated Dave enough that he wanted to go make it, that he just kicked off his own company, took a prototype around the world and pitched the idea and, and this is in the 70s? This was in the 70s, yeah. And he really had solved a lot of problems. He came up with this, he came up with a concept called an inline console. And the basic idea being the tape machine, instead of having a, a, a fader for the microphone, which feeds into a tape machine, and then that comes back and you have another another whole mixing board for the mix down, he decided you could save space and do a lot of cool tricks, share a lot of electronics, and do dual uh, get dual use out of your console. Not have to move around in front of the speaker and so not much, have to, too. Exactly. You can stay right in the, in the sweet spot. So he came up with this inline console idea where the tape machine is basically inserted into the middle of the console path, and you can either monitor the playback from the tape machine or you can monitor the microphone in the room. And then you can switch things around. For example, the EQ, you can, you can patch the EQ between the microphone and the tape machine while you're recording. And then you can patch it, you can click a button and put the EQ in between the tape machine and your playback and, and your speakers for when you're playing back. So you're taking the same piece of gear and with a button push, you're using it twice. That was one of the big advantages. So you didn't have to buy as much gear if you bought a Harrison console. And then he had really a lot of cool, really innovative monitor switching paths and you know, different uh, ways of building the Q feeds and the way the busing structure worked. All the channels could become a bus, a bus master, rather. So when it came time to mix down, you could switch a, a bunch of channels over to become group masters. And, I mean, really, he piled in the innovation. And so this is a guy who really liked director sets and Legos as a kid? <laughs> I would imagine so, yeah. Unfortunately, I never met Dave. I came along later in the company's history, and he had passed away shortly before I got here. So I hate that I never got to meet him. Well, but, so so he, he comes up with the design for the 32-channel console, which is called the Harrison 32, is that right? Right, the 32 series. 32 series, okay, great. And then then what happens next? I mean, like that, that console was pretty iconic and some, some That console records, was tremendously right? successful and was installed all over the world. Of course, Dave had the advantage of already knowing a tremendous number of studio owners because he had built studios and he had installed these systems before. So he really the knew a lot of about the business. Rolodex. Yeah. He when had you really Rolodex. had like a, you know, an actual red phone that went ring on your <laughs> desk and you, and you'd flip through the cards and call people. Exactly. He was that guy. So he had the big Rolodex and he was able to convince people that this idea was really something worth pursuing. So they were, they had really a, a lot of success with that console. I don't know how many were built, but I can tell you that many of the most successful records in that mid 70s to mid 80s period you can almost guarantee was made on one of these consoles because they were in all the big studios wow. and the, because they were so featureful they really met a lot of people's needs so let's name drop a little what, what are some of your favorite bands or records that you know of being recorded or mixed on a harrison it's always a little difficult to name what got mixed on what because people did work from studio to studio they would move from studio to studio Maybe the recording got done one place. Maybe the mixing got done somewhere else. They might have moved room to room. So what we've decided to uh, go by is if an engineer or a mixer says that was done on a Harrison console, 
that gives us the confidence to say, okay, that was, the, I mean, that yeah. was the guy. He was there. Well, if you know, he, if he is, if he says the sound came from the Harrison, then the sound came from the Harrison, you know? You're on a podcast. Now is a great place to start rumors too. Yeah. So just go for it. <laughs> well, <man. laughs> my point is that we don't make a huge list. We have guys come to the trade show and say, I did all the Madonna stuff on Harrison. I know that they're just uncountable big records, but I can tell you from some of the better documented ones that a lot of the Queen stuff. So another one bites the dust. I was just listening to that. My daughter just put that up on our Spotify in the car just like yesterday. I feel like all those had a sound, a recognizable sound. There was Charday's like Sweetest Taboo, that album, the Michael Jackson stuff, you know. Thriller. Thriller you guys ever bad. heard of that record, Rockstars? <laughs> Thriller? Thriller and Bad. And then you've got, you know, the ACDC, like Back in Black, that sound. That was an early, that was actually an MCI console that slightly predated the 32 series, but it was desi- designed by Dave Harrison. Wow. And I, I listen to all those records and I hear a sound. You know, they say it's all about the recording and it is. It's all about the musician. I mean, of course, that's more important than the gear you use. And when I listen to that selection of things, I really do hear a sound of that. Yeah, well, your ear is trained for it too. But I think that part of it is that, you know, for anybody, for any of our listeners who might happen to sit down on a console like this one, I think you'd probably, especially if it's in great working condition, obviously we're talking about a console that's, you know, many years old at this point. That's right, these consoles are 40 years old. So (laughs) occasionally we do have... I was just going to say, it would feel like working with a great instrument, hopefully, right? Right. We occasionally have guys come in and they say, oh man, I went to a place and they had an MR4 and that thing just, it was all messed up. And I said, well, you realize that console is 30 years old. So some of them have been maintained meticulously from day one and they still sound fantastic. Just like you say, they've they've got a rich patina on them and they've turned into wonderful old instruments. And then some other ones, this is the seventh generation person to own that console. And most of them bought it only because they found a console for $5,000, not because they really knew what they were getting. Yeah. And we're able to maintain that. So there's a wide range of consoles out there. But there are some 32 series consoles that have been maintained since the beginning that are still in operation. Well, so fast forward to the present, and you guys have done something pretty cool to allow those of us, you know, anywhere basically to be able to experience a very close replica of what that sound and experience is. I guess the experience is a little different because. If you've got the knobs and the faders in front of you, that's one thing. But the sound, tell us about Mixbus 32, because you guys have done something pretty unique with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we launched a product called Mixbus about five years ago. And that was a workstation that allows you to cut, copy, paste, import, and export. It has all those things in it. And we customized the mixer to have our channel strip. A, a simplified EQ, a simplified compressor, and we made kind of an introductory level audio workstation that has all the features that you could want, but it also has a Harrison mixer in it. And when we came out with that, it was a huge success. But there were people who said, well, okay, cool. You've made Mixbus. It's got this, you know, Mixbus EQ in it. I really want to have, I want to have the the Harrison 32C sound because uh, we made it, we had a partnership with the Universal Audio. We licensed the 32C equalizer for them to use in a plug-in. And then we also licensed that 32C circuit to uh, Dan Kennedy at Great River. He made a really cool 500 module that had that EQ in it. People, they knew that. They knew about that 32C EQ. And they wanted that to be in Mixbus. And then we also had some long, long-time customers that had used the 32 Series console. And they knew exactly where you're supposed to turn on those knobs to make things happen. And they kept asking us to make that 32 Series EQ. 
And we held off for several years. We wanted to bring the whole platform up to a level where we felt like, okay, this is really something that we can, you know, go out and mix a killer record on and say, this is the Harrison. You know, you're going to get that sound. You're going to get everything about it. And we have now launched Mixbus 32C. And it has a modeled software emulation of that original Harrison EQ. But you got to get kind of granular, right? I mean, to say it's modeled after the console or the EQ is one thing, but to realize that I think you guys, didn't you model every single individual component in the circuit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a, a, the way a circuit is laid out and how it, uh, there are all kinds of subtleties. I'm not the best guy. I'm not an analog guy. Um, and I don't want to give away too many secrets either. The recreation of that EQ goes beyond the range of the knobs that they sweep across. Although that's a huge part of it. I mean, you have to think about the the guys that work here went through a process that arguably nobody else in this whole industry has gone through. We used to make analog consoles, which we've been talking about. And then we made a product which was a digitally controlled analog console. Right, and, and we so, didn't talk about that yet, but I was going to share my story too, which is rewind all the way back to 1993 or something like I think it was, when I was here at school at MTSU, we did a field trip and we came to the Harrison console factory. I think it was in your previous location, maybe. But we came and visited and saw the plant, saw these, you know, gorgeous big giant machines that look like a Zamboni, and they, but they do wave soldering of the, the boards and all this stuff in there. And then you guys took us in at the end of the tour, you took us through this one special room and there were a bunch of guys with pocket protectors on in there, and they were designing the first ever digital... Yeah, digitally controlled analog. Yeah, digitally console. controlled analog. You guys had computer screens out with EQ curves on it and everything, and I was, I'd never seen anything like that. It was brand <laughs> new ideas back then. So I just wanted to share that. It's so cool to see that, you know, I caught, caught a glimpse of that at, when you guys were first coming up with it, and and now here we are. But go ahead. Yeah. Pick up where you circle. left off there. Well, this was Dave Harrison's idea. He always envisioned this, he called it a glass console, where you would basically just have a big empty surface that could do anything you wanted it to and would instantly recall and it would put the controls right in front of you. I mean, now that sounds like the world we're living in, you know, with touch, multi-touch touchscreens and iPads and, and all those kinds of things. But it was uh, just a complete dream back then. So the closest they could come up with was a control surface that did have some knobs on it but it had a computer that drove it so that when you wanted to recall all those settings, you could click one button and all of the knobs would recall their settings. So all the EQs and compressors and gate and all the aux sends and the fader and everything would remember exactly where it was yesterday or last week or last month. And that was a complete game changer. And again, this is an example of how Dave Harrison was always really pushing the limits of the technology. There are some other famous... American console manufacturers, you know, the APIs, and there's the British Rupert Neve School and the SSLs. But they really always made big iron. Generally speaking, these guys are making the same thing over and over again. They made the same product for since the beginning. Dave really did something dramatically different every time he made a product. So this digitally controlled analog console was launched, and it was a big hit with the film guys out in Hollywood. They realized that you need to be able to recall because they're rolling through a movie, and every scene, every few seconds, a track that is right now a gunshot is suddenly somebody sipping from a teacup. It just dramatically changes what are on those tracks of those playback machines. So the console had to adapt. And, you know, right now it's playing something loud, and now it's going to bring it down, and now it's going to roll off the lows, and now it's going to boost the lows, and now it's going to... They understood that being able to automate the mix was tremendously important. So they bought these 
digitally controlled analog consoles, and they were expensive. But they did a job that simply wasn't possible any other way. Before computers, uh, or I should say before computers could play audio, we had computers, but they were TRS-80 <laughs> right, you know, right. level, <laughs> level computers. Programming in your living room on yeah, basic. Yeah, you know, you, you're, you're programming the basic language. I mean, you know, silly things. So this system could recall all those settings in a way that people had never seen before. And then the digital revolution did come. And so we went to those same customers. And because we had separated the control surface where you actually have all the knobs and faders from a back end where the digital DSP was done, we had an opportunity that nobody else ever had. We went into those facilities. And again, this was super high-end film facilities in Hollywood and around the world. And we took out those racks of analog gear and we put in racks of digital gear to replace exactly what the analog was doing. So on Friday, but you left the controller surface. Was yeah, the control right? surface is still in the room. So this thing, these are big controllers. I mean, they're thirty feet long in some cases. They're operated by three users. So you have a music guy, and then a sound effects guy on each side, and in the middle is the dialogue guy. And of course, in a movie, dialogue is king. So he's he's the boss. He's making sure that every word of dialogue is heard. So there's three people operating the thing at one time, hundreds and hundreds of knobs. And on Friday, that guy is sitting down and he's moving faders and knobs and controlling an analog back end. In other words, the, the analog circuits that are doing all the mixing and the sound uh, manipulation are often a machine closet in the other room. That's right. They're in a machine. That's right. Exactly. They're in a machine closet in the other room. And, but the signal path is analog on Friday. But when he came in on Monday, we had replaced the analog racks with digital racks. So now he had to reach up and he's moving the faders up and down and he's turning all the knobs and they have to sound exactly the same as they did on Friday. That's fascinating. And it worked. Yeah, it worked. You guys worked. did it. We did it. We pulled it off. Did you tell them that you had changed it or did you just surprise them? Oh, no, yeah. Them? They, they knew. You know, they, they were the customers. They wanted it. They knew it. You know, they bought it. Yeah. And these were early days, man. I mean, I'm sure you can remember the 1990s in the world of digital and computers was a challenge, man. And so I won't pretend that we didn't have any problems. You're talking about a multi-million dollar system based on computers that are crude, but the DSP had to sound the same. That was the goal. When they came in and operated those things and were able to continue a project from before into what they're doing now, that was success. Man, so, I, I don't even have that smooth of a transition when I just upgrade my, you know, my DAW in the computer <laughs> and plugins. My, my OS. Yeah, so we successfully did that. We took some steps that nobody else has ever done. We took an analog product and turned it into a digital product with all the exact same knobs they were using the last week. And a lot of those guys that were in that transition still work here. So when we talk about taking that 32C and putting it in Mixbus, we've already done that process. Right, so you guys had figured out how to get a great digital sound a long time ago. And we'd had multiple generations of that. You know, we started off, we had a thing called the digital engine, which was based on 40-bit uh, shark processors, which are similar to what you would get in like a universal audio accelerator card. We have plugins, but we would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So like a UAD quad card has four of those cards and it goes in your computer. Well, I mean, a typical system of ours might have 250 or 300 of those little processors. And that was the first generation. Then we wrote software for that. So we had a couple of iterations of the software that ran in that box to make it sound exactly like they wanted it to. I can talk more about the technical details, but it may not be <laughs> totally too suitable deep for, for, a us, man. for a podcast. Yeah. I'm going to need my scuba gear yeah. if you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then we had a couple of generations of that. And then we came out with Mixbus. So whereas you look at a lot of other companies, I think, you know, they're making a DAW. And the first generation of the DAW was we can record a sound 
Okay, now we can export that and we got to figure out the wave format. Okay, now we're going to figure out how to load a plugin. Well, while they were all doing that, we were doing multiple generations of just the mixing sound. You guys were able to focus on just the sonics and the sound. And by the time you come along with Mixbus 32, a lot of the computery stuff has been figured it's out. Been and figured it's been figured out. And exactly. you can just adopt it and put it into put it into place, which is cool, man. I want to jump forward to talking about the Mixbus 32, but before we do, I always like to ask our guests to share an inspirational quote, something to get our listeners excited about making music in the studio. And I had noticed that you have a great one already on your website. So if you don't mind, I thought I'd share it with you and just let you comment on it. That'll be great. Yeah. Tell tell me. So this comes from Dave Harrison himself, and it was called Dave's Quaint But Sensible Rules of Engineering, uh, which have remained in the Harrison lexicon, which is great. And I'm glad I got to use the word lexicon today. (laughs) I think I know where you're going with this. And not just for a reverb. Um, So number one, always keep one foot on a rock. Number two, find out what you need to know. And number three, what is, is. So yeah. what do you, what do you, deep, can you comment on, on these, uh, yeah. these words of wisdom and what they mean? I, I'm sort of, I go straight to the poetic interpretation, yeah. but they might be more practical than that. Well, there too. were, these were some sayings and they've been around since I've been here. I wasn't around when Dave made them up, but we use them. For example, that line, you know, keep your foot on a rock. The idea is, especially in software development, you can forget where you're going. You start adding features and maybe you introduce a bug and then you start trying to fix that bug and then that crawls something else and you go do something else and go do something else. The keep your foot on a rock is uh, sort of a little saying that they developed, meaning make sure you've always got a good thing to go back to. Go back to that last known good place and move on from there. Yeah, don't get lost in the woods. Don't get lost. Exactly. Don't get lost in the woods, you know. So there. I, so I thought perhaps it had something to do with electrocution. So I'm glad to know that it's a little more, uh, you know, the poetic interpretation. All right. So then number two, find out what you need to know. Yeah, a very similar thing. When you're developing a product, it's so easy to assume that you know what problems people are having. To assume that if I have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Maybe you have to figure out what new skill you're going to have to learn before you tackle that problem. Okay, cool, man. These are great tips. I'm already spinning this into how this pertains to mixing, too, so I'm going to comment on that in a sec. And number three, what is, is? Uh, I've heard people say kind of a variant of that. It is kind of popular now, but it is what it is. Yeah, what is, is means, let's say you're working on an analog console, and suddenly it develops a ground buzz. And you say, well, you know, I wasn't working on the grounding system at all. I just tweaked this one little thing over on the talkback button. Well, the fact is, if the buzz started when you were fooling with that, let's accept that fact and not get our ego in the way. Right. In fact, in other words, there's a pretty good chance that that buzz might have been caused by that thing that you were turning yeah. over on the talkback <laughs> system, right? You know, or maybe your foot kicked the third prong out of the, <laughs> yeah, and so out of the wire. That comes up all the time in the studio. It's like getting no input sound on the track or something like that. That last thing you just did. Yeah. If your foot tapped on a wire, maybe you stepped on the power strip that powers the, you know, the interface and you just turned off your interface for your computer and therefore no audio is getting in. But I was thinking about always keep one foot on a rock happens all the time when you're recording and mixing. You're in production, you're recording, you start going down a rabbit trail of overdubs, you know, your mix gets out of whack. The tracks that you just recorded are now lower in the mix, and the most recent ones are the loudest in the mix that you're working on. And you hear it, and you're like, oh, it needs something. I better add something else to it. And your production can run away from you. And so it's nice to have, you know, your foot is on that rock. Is like, okay, what's the basic elements of my song that I'm working on? 
Or if you're mixing, same thing. It's like you start messing with things and manipulating and you're pushing things harder and harder and you get so far away from the essence of the song. Sometimes you just need to have your foot on that rock, which is like, just take those plugins off, tear your faders down, rebuild the mix and rediscover what was there all along for the song. And then you talk about finding out what you need to know, right? So the assumption is, in the same way that you might assume that you know what people's problems are when you're designing the console and you need to be more careful and find out what you really need to know, you might assume that you've got to start with your mix template and your plugins on top. And this is always what you have to use for the vocal chain. And you get away from the quality of the song because you're making assumptions. And then what is, is, is exactly what I was saying. There's a buzz in the studio on the bass. And it's like, well, what was the last thing you just did? Oh, I just plugged in that tube microphone without a ground lift out out on the floor. But but that shouldn't have anything to do with it. Well, but it just turned to buzz on, you know. Sometimes what is, is, is you didn't do anything at all. And that's just what, that's just the way the power is today, you know, and you're getting a buzz and just move on, deal with it. Well, so those are great stories, Ben. I I like hearing all that stuff, and that's great. And Dave sounds like a pretty awesome dude. I wish he was here to uh, join us on the podcast, but Dave, I know you're here in spirit, so welcome. All right, so now one of the things I wanted to ask you was about Mixbus 32. I was reading on the website that you guys describe it as true analog-style mixing. So we've talked a lot about the sound and the components, but analog-style mixing, I'm thinking about the experience. Tell us some of the stuff that is unique about Mixbus in terms of the experience of using this DAW. Do you even like to call it a DAW? Yeah, it is a DAW, unquestionably. It is a DAW. It's a complete workstation with MIDI tracks and virtual instruments and editing and importing and exporting and all those things. Uh, But you can look at a DAW and realize what each DAW makes the focus. You know, what do they give the most screen space to? It's as simple as that. For example, the other day, I just happened to be looking at a Pyramid screen, and they have the, you know, right across the top, main menu, you know, it says file, and then edit, and then crossfades and fades, or something like that. And it just struck me. You know, that's so interesting. I mean, apparently, in the creation of that program, the use cases they were going after, and at the time they were developing that, that was just important to them, to have the top-level main menu thing is fades and crossfades. So they don't right. vary it into preferences. They're putting that as the main menu item. In other words, crossfades seem like kind of an esoteric detail of making music in a DAW, and yet it was featured. That, that, that was very featured for them. I look at a lot of these earlier the DAWs that were developed since the very late 90s and early 2000s. You can just look at the front of it and see how that development happened over time. And you can see what things ended up on the top and what they consider the most yeah. important, you know? Well, let's talk a little bit about the basics of what do you see when you open up Mixbus 32. I mean, exactly. Each channel module has things on it that other DAWs don't necessarily have. For example, built into each one, you've got your usual input track fader and you've got a pan knob. Perhaps in some other DAWs, it may only go as far as that. But in Mixbus 32, you open it up and it includes a lot of the stuff that I always wish was there anyway. Here's a basic example. How long have I been wishing that every DAW just simply had a phase button on every track? I mean, yeah, exactly. why does that have to be a special effect? Yeah, every console, <laughs> you know, really had that. Pretty much every console you would ever put your hands on has that. So that was a fundamental feature of ours to add on. And we have, a, you know, the, the, the four-band EQ and the high and low-pass filters that were up directly modeled from our 32 series Right, and those console. are built into each channel. So yeah, you don't right have to pull up channel. an EQ plugin. You just reach up and grab your frequencies and go. Right. See, that's exactly how consoles worked. You had an EQ on every channel, which was intended for the purpose of mixing. 
Now, if you had to do something weird, like, well, you know, I've got to get this squeaky, or I got to get this ring out of the snare drum, then yeah, you might have to pull in some kind of special EQ for special that job. notch filter. Notch or filter yeah. or something. You have half a dozen of those things back in the rack that you use whenever you need to. But when you sit down to mix, most of what you're doing is, I need a little more thump on the kick drum and a little more thwack from the beater. And, you know, I need a little more body under the snare or I need to make it a little leaner on the snare. The process of mixing is working with bringing the multiple parts together. So you need to see them all at the same time. See, with a typical DAW, you, you have to double-click and pop open the window of an EQ plug-in. And then if you want to see four channels in a row, you got to open four windows. And it just quickly starts to get, you know, really yep. inconvenient to and manage I'll tell you, I'll all tell you what really kind of sucks is how frustrating it is when I go up and I reach and I turn the plug-in knob only to realize that was the one from the wrong track. That wasn't the one I was working on. Absolutely. Or your mix starts to sound wonkier and wonkier and wonkier. And finally you realize, oh, I put a compressor plug in and I've been making everything louder and louder and louder. And so what used to be sensible settings are now ridiculous. And so we've got compressors in every channel and the gain reduction is shown directly beside the fader so that you can scan your eyes across that console and see what all the compressors are doing. And that saves you, you know, so much effort. We also do a little trick where if you turn one of the knobs on the EQ, it turns the EQ on, it turns off the bypass. And then you can click the bypass to AB with and without the EQ. But you never have that thing happen. And I know, you know, even the best of us, surely, don't make me be the only person who's ever done this, but you tweak the EQ knob and right, you say, right. oh, finally I get it. And then an hour later you realize it was in bypass the yeah, whole right. time. You weren't even doing <laughs> anything. Tell us a little bit about the master section on there because it does some cool things, including the tape emulation. But I'd love to talk about some of the plugins before we take a break and hit the jam session at the end. Yeah, I'll be happy to. Well, the master section, again, because this is a console emulation, we don't just have another channel that you assign to be the master and that's the master fader and then you add your plugins or whatever. The master strip actually has some important dedicated functions. For example, there's a loudness meter on it. There's a, a K14 loudness. It looks like a VU meter, but it's actually measuring the RMS level and it gives you an idea of how loud your mix is. There's also a phase correlation meter that tells you how monocompatible your mix is or how out of phase it might be. There's a tape saturation stage on all of the 12 stereo mix buses, there's a tape saturation stage, and those are intended to recreate the multi-track recording. The best example is when you're recording a snare. Those old meters, they couldn't move fast enough to show you that initial transient of the snare. You would tend to record that snare pretty hot onto the track. Yeah, you're always hitting zeros, right? You're always hitting zero, but actually that initial peak goes way beyond zero, and it's getting soft-clipped on the tape machine. The meter wouldn't show you that. And you could take some extra effort to bring it down so that you didn't soft clip that, but then your snare would be really quiet on tape. So right. you never or, did yeah, that. You, or you get too much tape noise. Exactly. You start picking up noise. So you needed to actually crank that into the tape a little bit. So the tape saturation stage isn't intended to add noise or distortion, but what it does do, it soft clips those really loud transients, sort of blunt off some of those ridiculously loud peaks and allow you to mix everything at a more traditional yeah, basically pop just, Yeah, level. you can kind of push your mix up hotter. and You them. push everything a little hotter. Yeah, which is cool. And then we have, uh, we have the master bus, which we were talking about earlier, and it has another stage of that tape saturation to recreate the final two mix, just like it happened in a traditional pop music studio. Nobody was ever slamming the tape. But there was a little bit of edge taken off each time. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the plugins because you guys have designed some very cool plugins. 
rock stars. I actually remember picking up the original mix bus when it first came out. I was like, ooh, that's cool. I'm getting it. And then sadly, as some of you may have experienced with an abundance of software and things, you know, I, I just never really dug into it. I had it, but I was busy with this DAW or that new plugin or whatever, and I never really dug in. Recently, Mixbus 32 came out, and I got really fascinated again, and I checked it out. I haven't had a chance to really dig into it, but I got a quick listen to it. And I have to say, man, I was just, I wasn't even on the studio speakers. I was on my desktop Bose, you know, computer speakers. I know those well enough to know when things are sounding good or bad on them and just pulled up some tracks. And I pulled those tracks in, listened to it. And it sounds cool, man. The EQ, I reached for the EQ, started turning them. You know, you don't even have to put a plug in on or turn it on or anything. In fact, the EQ turns itself on if you happen to grab a knob and use it. And it just sounds sounds really good, you know? And then I started playing around with the plugins and the reverbs, the delays. Plus, you guys have some pretty unique things. You've got these character plugins and the TomTom gate. And I, I thought I would ask you before we take a break here to share with us some of the unique plugins and maybe give us a really good mixing trick that we could do with that. Can we start with the TomTom plugin? And can you give us a good trick? Because I know you've also been shooting these awesome tutorial videos for Harrison. Right. Yeah, that, that Tom Tom gate is an interesting example. Um, what we can do as designers is we can actually make pieces of software that are designed for specific things, so that we, in a really tweaky and scientific way, can look at that type of signal, determine what typically needs to be done to that kind of thing, and then we can make, you know, custom software that attacks that specific problem. I mean, if you look at plugins that are out there. There are thousands of compressors and just hundreds and hundreds of EQs. At the end of the day, it's up to you to make that work on this signal source. And sometimes it works just great. And sometimes you have to go through nine plugins before you find the EQ that will do this thing. We made these plugins, these DSP elements, for specific elements. So, I mean, let's talk about the TomCom gate. Yeah. That's the one you mentioned. I mean, here you have a drum kit, right? And you've got these toms that only get hit four times during the whole song. And the microphone for that tom is less than a foot away from the loudest damn thing in all of rock and roll music is that snare drum. If you want to change the character of those drums a little bit, or you want to add a little reverb just to the toms, or you've got a real problem because the gate is going to always open up. And you can run like these track cleanup type tools, and you can go in and edit that thing. And then you also have the problem, once you've made those edits, let's say with a, with a gate, you have some cool knobs that you can later in the mix process say, you know... I'm going to let the release be a little longer. I want to hear a little more of the bloom. You know, I want to hear a little more of it. Or I want to tighten it up. I'm going to turn the release and the hold shorter so that I tighten up all those times. Or honestly, sometimes you do want to hear the resonance of the tom in your mix. Sometimes that, you know, people describe that as adding the air to the your air, drum sound. yeah. So you want to make those decisions in the mix when you're, when you're down to those final mix stages and not have to go back to the editor and re-edit that tom track. So uh, we made this tool. It's called the Tom Tom Gate. And what it does is you actually play a piece of your tom and you roll through that section while you've got this thing in learn mode. And it says, ah, all right, that guy has a resonant frequency of this. His attack sounds like this. Now I'm going to recognize that. And now when you roll back through the track and you roll through the whole thing, it won't trigger on the snare anymore. It only opens when that tom is struck. Right, because you guys have the cool feature where you can train it to know what the tom sounds like, but you can also train it to know what the snare, snare sounds like sounds that's like. bleeding through. That's right. So, so the you other say, thing this that, is what I want, and that's what I don't, and it will always open on the thing you want and not the other thing. That's cool, man. The other thing that I always keep run into when I'm doing my toms and cleaning them up, somehow or other, I've always got a crash cymbal that's just way 
too damn loud in my Tom <laughs> mic. And I always have to trim it so that that fade is done just before it hits the downbeat of the one. So it's like Tom Phil crash on the one. Because if that if it catches that crash, you know, it's cranked and it's like rips my head off. So I don't know if you guys got a, a feature for that, but that's my suggestion the next, for the future yeah, add-on is the crash remover, you know. Well, we're all about these problem-solving things. And we've done this for various drum things, bass and guitar. Typical problems when you're recording electric bass guitar is that the amp you're micing can't recreate the fundamental. Or on the other side, it's just too boomy and you've got to reduce the fundamental. Uh, we got all kinds of cool, specific tools to do those things. Yeah. So keep going. What are some other plugins? You guys have delays. You've got some great sounding reverbs. Anything cool or special about the reverbs? Yeah, we have two plugins. We call it the Essentials Bundle. And it's a really nice sounding reverb. We've had tons of people tell us it's a killer reverb. And then we have a really great delay that can do all your typical ping pong stuff, slap back, all those kinds of things. It's set up to cross modulate and and feedback from one side to the other and do all kinds of wild and wacky sounds, but also your straight up meat and potatoes kind of delays. Can I do tap tempo with that delay You can do too? a tap tempo. You can I have it follow the tempo. tempo. Yeah, you can you can tell it, you know, to follow the tempo of the song. So if you are recording to a click and you know that it's at exactly, you know, 118.7, you can just click on it, you know, use the tempo that the session is using and it'll right. follow along as you ramp up and down the tempos. Okay, so another plugin, I want to go through some of my usual points like drum sounds, for example. I know you guys have a special plugin. It's kind of like Drum Shaper or something right. like that. Tell us about that one. Well, we have three plugins together that are called the, the character bundle. There's the bass character, the vocal character, and the drum character, and they're specifically designed for those instruments. The drum character, for example, it has two EQs. It can boost the highs or boost the lows. There's one for the attack portion of the sound. So when you hit the snare you can EQ that attack to be brighter and sharper, or you could cut the highs so that you kind of have a softer, tamer attack on that snare. And similarly, in the tail, you can either boost the low. So if you want the, the snare to have more meat, a boomier, thumpier sound to your snare, then you can boost the lows of just the tail portion. So you still get that crack up front, and then you get this boomy resonance out at the end of it. Or you can cut that resonance out of the end of it. So you have a really hard crack at the beginning, and then you say, now I want you to cut out some of that ring or some of that resonance, the shell resonance, right after that. The way I would describe the differences in sounds is that typically when you just EQ more low end into the snare, it sounds like it's got more low end, but it sounds like you just EQ'd more low end in. When you use your drum character plugin, it sounded to me more like when I moved the mic closer and got the proximity effect on a snare, or like somebody took their snare and tuned it down and got that deep, like, doof, doof kind of sound. So to me, it was more effective a way to really change the character. Uh, yeah, exactly, duh. man. I was, change the I was character wondering if you were going to use the, the drum. <laughs> Lid, you are exactly right. I mean, we named those the character bundle because they actually changed the character of the thing. A very similar story for the bass EQ, for example. All it has is a high and a low knob. You know, it has it has two EQs that you can move around. But what's important about that thing is it moves that EQ with the notes you're playing. So normally, if I say, all right, I'm going to boost at 80 hertz, you know, that's going to get the second harmonic of the E string. And then if you go up an octave on the E, that'll be getting the fundamental of the E. You're affecting the different notes differently. So the person hears that as an equalization change. That sounds like the amp did it. Okay, what if we wanted to make it sound like the bass did it? So the character plugin actually tracks the notes you're playing, and I can say, I need to boost the fundamental. You know, this, this bass doesn't give me that really low end that I want. 
So I'm going to boost the fundamental. And no matter what note I play, it actually changes the character of the instrument. That's cool. It feels more like you're making a musical choice at the mix stage right. than just making sort of like a you know, manipulative. And you're not choice. replacing anything. You're not distorting it. You know, all you're doing is boosting and cutting what was there. That's cool, yeah. man. Now, something else that I noticed about Mixbus, there was something where I was able to analyze the loudness of a track and it popped up and it gave me the LUFS rating for that track, which means loudness units full scale. So it right. told me like how close it was to maximum loudness. And, and I found that difficult to find in other places. So it was nice that it was so easy to find in this. But it also gave me the, um, you know, the beautiful color image with all the a spectrogram down at spectrogram. the bottom. Now, is that part of the process in Mixbus? And when we want to see how our low end's doing and building up visually, do we have extra tools that are part of using that DAW? Yeah. The way I encourage people to use that is to load up a track that they like that might be similar in style to the one that they're mixing now. And that loudness called loudness loudness units loudness analysis loudness you, you, well, what you no wonder you camera loudness analysis yeah loudness analysis so you you select the range that you want to analyze it also does it automatically when you export your track uh, but it pops open this window that shows hey here's how loud you were uh, here's what parts of your song were loud you know and it also gives you an idea of you know here you had a lot of high end right here at the beginning you know and then and then during the each of the chorus parts you can see where it gets kind of dull that in itself is moderately interesting, but where it gets really interesting is when you look at another song in comparison to yours. And you can say, oh, I see why they're getting that. You know, they're three more loudness units louder than me. Or they've got, you know, a lot more high end throughout this whole thing. You know, you can make a lot of judgments like yeah. that. Now, do you see this spectrogram somewhere in real time while you're working too, if you're trying to balance low end? Is that part of it? Or do you, is that sort of a... Second step once you've printed your mix. Uh, it is a sec generally speaking, we we treat it as a second step. Okay, cool. Well, groovy. Then here we're going to take a break and we'll jump back in for the jam session. Go through some uh, series of quick questions. And before we do that, rock stars, just want to remind you that you can learn more about Ben and Harrison Consoles at HarrisonConsoles.com. And of course, you can find out more of all the stuff we're talking about in our wonderful show notes at recordingstudiorockstars.com or just put in rsrockstars.com. And if you're on your iPhone listening or phone, smartphone device, just pull up the podcast app. You should be able to see a logo of Recording Studio Rockstars there when you're listening. If you touch on that, it turns into the show notes and you can just click right through with your finger. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys in just a sec for the jam session. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks 
and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, rock stars. It's Lidshaw. We're back for the jam session. I'm here with Ben Loftus at Harrison Consoles. We're about to jump into the jam session. Ben, welcome back, man. Are you ready to jam? I'm ready to jam. Awesome, dude. So, Ben, when you were starting out, what was one of the obstacles that was holding you back? Oh man, uh, excellent question. You know, most of my career is programming and working on these products. I'm I'm not a recording engineer, but I have done a lot of recording uh, of you know myself and friends and whatnot. We recently uh, started going into a studio. I've got a band of uh, a couple of dads in town. You know, we got a rock and roll thing. We do original music, and uh, you know, one of the things we found is if we want to work on something collaboratively. It can be a real pain because some guys are on Mac, some guys are on Windows, you know, this guy has these plugins, this guy doesn't have anything at all. So one of the things that I focused on when I was working on Mixbus, and I see this in my neighborhood a lot, obviously living here in Nashville, you can't throw a rock from my house without hitting like three professional musicians. And they're constantly passing sessions back and forth, recording, you know, one dude will do the guitar work, one dude will do the drums, one guy will do the bass, and they'll pass these things around, but it's a huge pain. And uh, being a computer guy, I'm very often called upon to be the IT guy. And I've got to go over and say, oh, they sent you, you know, this kind of file. Oh, they didn't line it up. You know, they didn't line them all up together. Let's do that, you know, and I'll help people get through that process. Or they'll send, they'll say, yeah, well, he asked Cubase, so I'll, you know, I'm going to open it in Cubase too. But yeah, but you don't have all the plugins yet. You're not hearing what he heard, you know. And so I've really focused on... Um, making that really easy. So Mixbus works from Windows XP all the way up to Windows 10, and it also works from Mac 10.6.8 all the way up to the current 10.11 and coming up 10.12. And so pretty much no matter what computer you've got, it's going to work on there. And then the second thing we do is our plugins, the separate plugins that you buy from us, if I buy that plugin and I put it on a session and I open up that control panel and I set all the settings just like I want it, and then I send the session to you, whether I'm on Mac or Windows or whatever, when you open that session, you'll hear that plugin and you'll see it in there, even though you haven't bought it. That's so awesome, man. I think it's really cool. You know how many times I've wished for that? Like, you know, so here's a scenario for me, right? Where I've maybe done something like I'm doing mix prep. Uh, I'm about to mix a record and I've got an assistant and I've wanted to be able to, you know, say just Dropbox a session to them to prepare it or get get the mix started and balanced and send it back to me. I've never been able to do that before because it was always like, well, I don't have Rvox or I don't have whatever plugin it is. Sorry. 
You know, so it's very cool that you guys thought about that. Yeah, we, we think that's really important. We see that people are collaborating a lot. We felt that was a problem that wasn't being addressed. That's cool, man. I like that a lot. I've had situations where a buddy might want to come over and mix in, in my studio and not have to bring his whole computer rig and everything. But he's like, ah, but we don't have the same plugins and I don't want you to install all your plugins on mine. And so, yeah, let's give it. All right. So now how about sharing with us some of the best advice you received? We went in to record, like I say, with this band, the guy that runs the studio where we were recording, it was real important to him to have us in there all playing at the same time. I know that sounds obvious, but after I just spent 10 minutes talking about, you know, people collaborating a whole lot, there really is a magic with playing together. I would say my favorite piece of advice is to capture the moment. I mean, we're, we're probably not going to be famous rock and roll stars. So what I really don't want to do is listen to this record in 15 years and say, oh, yeah, man, uh, that's awesome. You know, I'm the bass player and I'm maybe singing some harmonies or something, but that's not really me. I mean, you know, they auto-tuned the vocal and somebody actually, you know, cut and copied parts that I couldn't play very well on the bass. They cut, copy, pasted that. You know, we're just leaving in most of the mistakes. The only thing we're doing is, you know, occasionally punching in or, I mean, we'll redo a song a whole bunch of times. Maybe that's cheating. But I don't think that's as much cheating as, <laughs> you know, what you can do with a computer. Right. So we're trying to capture this this point in time, you know, these four guys playing together. It's something we can look back on and say, wow, didn't we sound good back then? You know, or didn't we sound bad back then or whatever it is. Uh, I I think there's an honesty and an integrity in that. That's kind of where we're coming from. It's sort of just choosing what you want it to represent later on when you look back at it. Do you want it to represent who you guys were as a group playing music together? Or do you want to look back and have it represent what production used to sound like back in, in 2000, right. whatever? Well, cool, man. Well, so now how about sharing with us, um, despite the fact that you didn't use any on your recording, how about sharing with us a recording tip hack or secret sauce? Because <laughs> now you did, did mention some cool stuff about the plugins, but maybe there's something else you'd like to share with us, something um, that's just a cool trick that our rock stars could take and use this week in the studio on their productions, maybe even if they don't have Mixbus just yet. I think I would have to say layer those guitars, man. I mean, you know, give it give it a couple of different tones. Let the guitar player out of your band is probably the guy who has <laughs> the most interest in going back and overdubbing over and over again. We always give them a chance to go back and layer it on, man, because you know you'll, you'll never get exactly those same notes in the in a row, and it gives it a nice big fat sound that you can pan left and right. And although we are trying to recreate ourselves, that's really him. It just happens to be him eight times over. <laughs> well, now, here, I'll, I'll go back and reference one of Dave Harrison's wise bits of advice, which was uh, to remember to always keep your foot on that rock, though, so that you can go back, you know, if you get eight guitars deep and you realize that you had it <laughs> at guitar, too. Yeah, keep those, keep the bones to the song intact, right? All right. And then I'm actually going to jump in, Rockstars, and share with you a trick about layering guitars that I learned from Graham Cochran, another guest on the show. If you've got two guitars and they're the exact same tone. You've layered them and one's left, one's right. And that always, you know, makes it sound bigger, doesn't sound as wide as you want it to. There's a great trick that Graham showed about widening those two guitars. Now, again, this this is two identical tones and parts played and they're panned left and right. You have an EQ on each of those guitars and you find some different ranges of the EQ. So let's say you you pick the presence range for each and it's like 2K, 3K. On the right guitar, you go boost a little bit of that 3K. And on the left guitar, you cut the same amount of the 3K. 
Now, on the left guitar down there, you go into the sort of the body range of the guitar um, in, you know, the, the hundreds, three, four hundred hertz, five hundred hertz. And you boost a little bit of the 500. Now, on the right-hand side, you go over and you cut a little bit of the 500. And it's remarkable, remarkable what that does to give an effect of widening the sound of those stereo guitar pairs. That's a very easy trick to do with the mix bus because there are those EQs right in front of you. They're already matched. It's you know super easy to match up all those those spots and and to match the knobs and everything. So, thought I'd jump in and share that one with your with your yeah, guitar great, layering trick. Great like point. It. All right, now how about sharing with our listeners the Rockstar's a favorite hardware tool? I know you guys make a lot of stuff that's physical. You want to talk about some of that at all? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I was um, uh, I read through your notes earlier, and I knew you were going to ask this. So I, my first thought was, uh, don't forget to bring the the rug for your drummer. You know, that's the thing we always see. Okay, that's behind. a good one. Yeah, I like I, that. Uh, does that count as hardware? I don't sure, know. Sure. Yeah. And have you ever seen those drummer rugs where they actually um, the felt ones where they take a two by four and put it on the end and then you nail the felt into the two uh, by four and then you roll it in one time and then you nail that in. So now you have like a felt rug that, you know, most of it is regular rug, but at one end it just wraps around this two by four and sits there. And then you just slide your kick drum up against that. Oh no, I have never you, heard of that. And then on the back side that of that's sort of going out, that's where your drum stool sits. So your kick doesn't drift away from you while you're recording. Genius, man. I'm going to do that in the moment I get home. That's great. All right, cool. got to do that. Cool. Drum like dig it. Why don't you give us a quick rundown of some of the hardware stuff that music makers might find at Harrison, for example. Absolutely. Well, we just came out with something really cool that I think anybody could put to use, and that is the 32CS. So continuing the trend with the, the 32 series consoles, uh, we, we, we've relaunched the channel strip out of that console as a rack mount box. So this box gives you a mic preamp, got a really expensive Lundahl transform on the front. It'll give you a really awesome sound. It has the high and low pass filters taken directly from the 32 series consoles, and those are switchable. And then it has a four band EQ that's also switchable in and out. And then we have two really cool innovations in there because everything Harrison makes is always going to be on the innovative side of things. That's what we're all about is not not only giving you the meat and potatoes and the great sound that we always give you, but there's always a little a little hook to it, something a little different. Uh, there's an insert point that you can that you can patch a piece of gear into your your channel strip. And one of the cool things about this little insert point is that it's movable. You can either put it before the filters or you can punch a button and it puts it after the filters. Oh, cool. So yeah, you can do it gives you a lot of tone sculpting kind of stuff. The other cool feature we've got in that box is it has a little bitty monitoring section that has a stereo input on the back, and then it has a mix, just like a lot of the inexpensive uh, I.O. boxes have a you know dry, wet kind of a blend. We've actually done that in this piece of hardware so that you can blend this mic preamp with the playback from your sound card or laptop or I.O. high-end I.O. box, whatever you've got. Just makes the box a lot more versatile to use you know, in a smaller setup. Uh, for example, if you're a singer-songwriter, this is a killer channel strip and you don't even have to have a complicated IO box out there to do that mixing for yourself. That's cool. And I like the channel strip concept because if you're looking for gear and you just want to have a good mic pre, a good EQ, you know, uh, you can just get that all in one, you know. So you guys didn't put a compressor in it like the mix bus yet. <laughs> it doesn't have a compressor in it. Yeah. Cool. Maybe later, maybe later. Well, so now share with us a favorite software tool. I, I kind of think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> Oh man, I have I have tons of favorite software tools. Not only are they are they good tools, 
but I use them because I'm always on Mac and Windows and Linux. I'm constantly using all the kinds of desktop computers you, you would ever want. Although Apple makes some great tools. They've got a great email program. I can't use that anywhere else. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I stick to a lot of the Google products for the very same and reason. And we use tons of Google products as well. So uh, these, are, these are all really great ways uh, that I use to get work done when I'm swapping from computer to computer to computer all the time. And yeah, we use, we use the Google stuff like crazy. And online resource for organizational stuff, which actually I think you just did, which yeah. is Google. But how about something that maybe is a little more business oriented? You got a lot of people who are maybe, you know, running their own studio or they're mixing for, for hire, things like that. You got any tips for people that just about like, you know, how to, how to get your business straight? Yeah, very good question. Uh, we use, uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to two little tools that we use here that have been tremendously helpful. Uh, one of them is our payment processor that's called FastSpring, and they'll take credit cards and they have all kinds of coupon systems and those kind of things that, um, that make all that safe and secure and so that we don't have to worry about having people's credit card numbers here and we don't have to shuffle around, you know, what coupon applies when and when does it turn off and all those things. They can do all that work for us. It's important to build up a workflow, you know, uh, so that things move along smoothly. The other tool that we picked up fairly recently that we really love is called Help Scout. And this is a tool that we use in our customer service department so that when somebody emails us, uh, it shows up in a list that all of us can look at. And then when I start to answer an email, everybody else knows that I'm answering it and we won't end up answering it together at the same time. Help Scout and FastSpring are two of the things we really use a lot here. And that's good for rock stars to know because um, if they do, you know, go down the path of Mixbus or get into all your stuff, it's great to know that you guys actually have, you know, a functioning and loving help desk that is on top of things. It's so critical in the world of software, you know. All right. Well, so now this is sort of a hypothetical question I like to ask guests, and, and I'm going to ask you anyway, because I think there might be a once again, I think Mixbus might just appear here. Imagine that you needed to start over in recording somewhere. You were starting out. Uh, you needed a simple setup to record with. You needed to find people. You needed to make ends meet while you're going. Maybe we can focus on the simple setup, but what would you suggest to yourself starting out or to somebody who's who's going to start recording? It's uh, an excellent question. Um, honestly, I have had to answer that question before, and I think there's a little four-track, you know, Porta Studio, man. I mean, that's really a great place to start. But let's assume for a minute that people do have access to a computer, yeah. and uh, maybe they're going to consider Mixbus. How does it interface with recording interfaces? I mean, do you guys make a unit that we can use for I.O. to get in and out of Mixbus? Or if I'm doing a home studio, am I typically going to pick something up and have to plug it in with a USB? What's the deal with that? Yeah, that's right. You'll pick up pretty much any USB interface or just use the built-in sound card. Mixbus, it's an entry-level program in the price, but it's actually intended for people who are really getting difficult things done. It can be a good place to start. I mean, we have schools that are teaching it, for example. And if you have somebody who has mixed sound at a church, for example, and so they know basically the faders, you know, up means louder and, you know, this makes it bassier and that sends it to the reverb. If they're that kind of person, Mixbus is going to get them started faster, actually, than a typical old style DAW where, yeah. you know, nothing happens until you start adding plugins. How about a lot of our rock stars are also people who have been recording in the past. Maybe they f were familiar with tape and, and consoles and played music and they're sort of revisiting the studio world and they're just getting into computers for the first time. 
I, do you imagine that Mixbus is probably going to be very, in, well, I'm just going to use the word intuitive. It's okay. But you it'll can, you make a lot much. of sense to them if they're used to what a console used to be, you know? Yeah, unquestionably. We hear that all the time. That's the bulk of our users, honestly, are people who have had a, a life recording traditionally. And they've now they're moving to computers and they just want to see those knobs and you know, they want to a- have it act like they're used to. I mean, even very fundamental things. With a tape machine, you arm the tracks and then you rolled. And if you wanted to punch in, you could hit the record button. It would start recording there, you know. Mixbus will do that. It makes things happen like most people are used to them happening from that era. Yeah, that's cool. I noticed you had the input and I think you called it disc up at the top. You could do input so you can hear your mic coming in or disc and it'll play back what's off the disc. Yeah. Um, And I was even thinking, I was like, ah, what's going to happen when the technology changes and we aren't using discs anymore? But (laughs) it's all right. It's all right. So Ben Loftus, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here hanging out with you. And what a cool, cool place this is here at the Harrison Console Factory. You gave me a wonderful tour around. I'll be including a couple of photos of some of the cool mixing consoles and the boards, you know, that you pulled out of the backs of the machines and stuff like that. Let our listeners know how can they find you? How can they learn more about Harrison Consoles and Mixbus 32? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can find us at www.harrisonconsoles.com. And we have all of our products there on that one page. We have uh, Mixbus starting at $79 and then Mixbus 32C at $299. And then we have our rack mount gear, which is, you know, a little more expensive. And then we have the high-end film console. So the, the entire range of products is represented there. You can click around. We have a long history page that tells about the history of Harrison. We have all kinds of interesting things about digital processing, I.O. boxes that we make, and the software and the plugins that we sell. And even some of our partners for example, Universal Audio, we have a page dedicated showing how they've got their licensed version of the 32C. You can get directly to their store from our website. I think you'll find there's tons and tons of information there to look around. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much again for joining us. And I'm really excited to dig further into Mixbus. Perhaps we'll be doing something live at some point with the rock stars uh, to demonstrate more about it. We'll see you around Nashville and around the studio, and maybe I'll just see you on stage with your your dad's, your weekend dad rock band that you were telling us about, too. Great, Rich. Thanks a lot. All right, dude. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw. And this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.